The scripture is from Hebrews 6, verses 7 through 20. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you, and thus Abraham having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heir of promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 6, 7 through 20, the word of the Lord. Good morning. Thank you, Midge. I know that was a long passage, and we probably could just say amen and, and go for the day. Um, I love the book of Hebrews. Uh, the book of Hebrews, or the letter, I guess, uh, to the Hebrews, is one of my favorites for years. It's, uh, it's one of those books I was just talking with Midge this morning, too. It's one of those that has such a, a wonderful uh, intertwining of the Old Testament to the New Testament fulfillment of things. And, and it's constantly pointing to the supremacy of Christ. Uh, and so, but, but just to see how they are constantly making these bridges throughout of where there may be question of, well, what does this mean in the Old Testament? How does that become something in the New? And, and you see that throughout Hebrews. It's also a book that addresses readers who had made a break, a break from their past religion, most likely Judaism. And they embraced the Christian faith despite the opposition and the persecution that was happening. All right. Can you all hear me all right? Okay. Great. But these folks seem to be having second thoughts. They are realizing this is going to be a little bit harder than they thought. Um, and so the writer of Hebrews is encouraging all throughout. Number one, it's not time to throw away your confidence. He encourages them that their high priest, the founder and perfecter of our faith, has suffered for his people, and because of this, they can come, he, he can come to the, their aid. And so as we face our trials, 
we see this. We see this encouragement, and as they face their trials, they are encouraged. And so what we see is a lot of encouragement and hope and confidence in Christ and in God himself. So three themes I want to look at in our long passage, and I won't spend a whole lot of time on the front end because I think at the very end, that last section is really the meat of it. Uh, it kind of sums it up and brings it all together, but I do think it's worth noting some of the, the front end context. But three themes I want to look at. Number one, the hope. Number two, the anchor. And number three, our forerunner. So now let's, uh, let's talk about the hope. In Lord of the Rings, I love those movies, and my son and I really need to watch it once again. We've been talking about that, but in the throes of everything else, um, we are finally to a place where I'm ready to sit down and watch that trilogy again. Um, but there's a scene in the third film, Return of the King, and it's just as Frodo and, and Sam are, are kind of at that point. They're, they're on their way to Mordor to destroy this ring, and everything's looking pretty bleak at this point. And so Gandalf is, uh, is standing there, and, and you see him with, um, I believe it's Pippin. And uh, Pippin turns to, to him, and, and Gandalf makes a, a surprising statement. He says, uh, there wasn't any hope. There really wasn't much hope going into this mission. And you see that, uh, that the young hobbit is, is kind of thrown back and shocked to hear the wizard tell him this. But then Gandalf says this, just a fool's hope. The reason this moment is such a pivotal part of the movie is because Gandalf refers to a fool as someone who technically is not too smart for his own good. It's that type of an individual. That's kind of how the hobbits were seen. They weren't the most daring. They were kind of people who cared about taking care of themselves for the most part. They were, they were a meek people. They were humble if you looked at them. People would wonder, what, what could possibly come out of the Shire that would do this magnificent thing? It reminds me of when Nathaniel asked Jesus, or, or asked the question about Jesus, what, what good could possibly come out of Nazareth? And here we have this moment of, of two hobbits, one in particular, Frodo, who's bearing this, this little hobbit going up, risking it all to destroy this ring. It's a fool's hope. It seems foolish. It seems like a, like a death mission. Who would dare to think? But there's a little hope, and that's all it takes. And that's what Gandalf's getting at. So when we talk about the hope that we've been given, when we look at this text, it really is a beautiful thing to see how we can be encouraged, even in the midst of things that are happening around us. There's so much happening in the political sector, in our culture, there's things that we can praise and at the same time knowing that we can praise and celebrate some things that are, that are happening, we also know that it's going to create even more struggle, more hostility. We are in tough times. And many people might say, why even bother hoping? Just take care of yourself. Just do what's good for you. You do you. We're not, uh, that's not the message that the Lord calls us to, though. So in Hebrews 6, verses 7 through 12, there we go. I know this is tiny. I'm just squeezing it in. You don't have to read it. If It says, For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. 
He goes on and he says, but if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless. It's, it's for being burned up. And he says, but we believe, we believe, beloved, that there are better things, things that belong to salvation for you. And then he says that God was not so unjust, that God recognizes those things that you've been doing. So apparently this congregation of people, these, this group of people were struggling. They were wondering, have, have the things we've been doing, we've been doing all this time in trying to pursue Christ in the midst of this struggle, is it really worth it? Has it actually made any effect at all? Does it have any impact? He says, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. I bring this up because right off the bat, I just want to say, as I was studying this, I think you and I both know, we all know that when we go to the scriptures at different stages and places in our walk with the Lord, some things just stand out because a little bit more because of the moment you're in where God has you in his providential plan. For me, I began to actually envision Highlands Church right here um, when it said, in his name, serving the saints as you still do. And I started thinking about just in our brief time here at Highlands, what that even has looked like. And I started thinking of like, the Kenyards, the Jakes, the Lindgardens, Herman and Kim and their future church plant, Jordan and Maribel. I think about each and every one of you, those that we haven't even seen, but we've heard their names who were part of this congregation and have gone on to serve in other places. It's amazing to think and to hear and even the blessings we've received from this congregation and the love that we have experienced. And so... Um, I throw that out there just simply because that's what stood out at the front end was that sometimes it's easy to kind of look at moments where we're at and say, wow, what, what's the work been about? What's it been? And I will say, saints have been encouraged. But then he says this, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, that is the same genuineness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end and this is a continual theme in Hebrews. It's a hold fast to the end. Hold fast. Remain steadfast. And the reminder is that God is steadfast in his love and his care. And so we can remain steadfast because he has us. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who by faith and patience inherit the promise. So by faith, we do have hope. And this hope, as we see Jumping towards the second portion or the, the last portion, as I mentioned, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place. It's a hope that we have only because we have gone into the presence of God, because we have been carried and anchored to the very presence of God behind the curtain. We'll talk a little bit more about this as we get further along, but I just want to say it's okay to hope. It's okay to hope. And that's what God is telling us. It's okay to hope. Why is it okay? Let's talk about the anchor. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Now we all can look back and remember the story of Abraham and how many things he uh, might have grown impatient on 
And the Lord would continue to reroute him, redirect him, bring him back to a place where he was, okay, Lord, I've got to put my faith back in the right place here and trust that you are going to fulfill your promise. And that's what he says. But the beautiful thing here is that he's talking about the covenant. The covenant that God makes, the the reference here that the writer of Hebrews is going to is, is God's covenant with Abraham and saying, listen, I, God swears by himself. Like we swear, as it says, by someone greater than ourselves when we make an oath with someone. God has no one greater than himself. There's something called, um, I was reading in one of my classes, my first semester at Covenant Seminary, and it was a book by Timothy Ward called Words of Life. And, uh, and it was one of these books that I was just, I had been out of college for quite a while, um, thought I was smarter than I actually was. And, um, and so I got into these classes and I was thinking, wow, I know nothing. And I began reading this book and it was a little thick at first, but there was so much stuff. And one of the things that I go to this book time and again and, and, and tell people about is this section on the speech acts of God. Speech act theory is this theory that, that talks about how when we say words, when we make a promise to someone, we are actually putting ourselves in a position that, that, that now has the person is now obliged to believe us. We are now putting ourselves, uh, they, they have the, the choice to, to trust us at what we say. Take us at our word. And so there's sort of this speech that happens, but there has to be an action that follows it in order for it to actually be what it is. And I can think of things time and again where I have said, oh yeah, I'll do that. I'll be right there. I'll, I'll be there in just a minute. And 30 minutes later, I know that the actions did not follow through with the exact words that were said. But the whole point of what Timothy Ward's getting at is that when God says something, one thing we see is that he follows through. It might not be in our timing. It might not be in the way that we we would like to see or think it's going to happen. But what we do see is he follows through. He is a God of promise and fulfillment. He is one who has proven time and again that he can be taken at his word. And that's the beauty of the speech act theory. Is that we can see how often we can fail at that. But God has never failed. And so it's, it's a wonderful thing to look at here in Hebrews when it says... So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. And that oath, he promised with himself. In other words, if, if I don't follow through with my promise, I am no God. I am not worthy of your worship. I am not worthy of any of that. I am no different than you. This is, this is an, an amazing thing to see because what God has done is he once again not only shows the confidence in his own character and understanding of who he is, but he helps us to see that more and more and more as he unfolds his plan before us and he continues to walk with us and move us through that and give us the grace when we fail to see it to continue to have another opportunity to see it again and again. So that by two unchangeable things, and this is it, we know that God doesn't lie. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast 
to the hope set before us. There's that word, hope. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. So there is this relationship between anchor and hope. And there is something about the way that the writer is talking about and using this idea and this notion of of the anchor, being anchored and hope, is that it goes into, anchored behind the curtain, remember? We're tethered to this. It's a hope that's tethered to us and an anchor that's on the other end. And so now we come to the forerunner. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. He's talking about into the very presence of God, anchoring our hope into the very presence of God. This is a reference, of course, to the the most holy place in the temple and in the tabernacle where only the high priest was allowed to go in and he could only go in after first purifying himself going through the the process of purification, he would go in with the blood sacrifice to offer and sprinkle on the mercy seat on behalf of the people. And here what it says is we have this sure, steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. It's saying that our hope now has gone inside that curtain. How so? By whom? By Jesus. He's gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It's interesting that this word forerunner is only used once in the Greek, and it's right here in Hebrews. And oftentimes later in, uh, I would say probably later commentaries and such, uh, you find that that the forerunner, John the Baptist is referred to as a forerunner. Um, Others who, who have gone before would be considered a forerunner of, of a greater person coming in. Forerunners were also said to be kind of talked about as, as sort of a front, a front army that would go ahead before the, the larger army would come through and sweep, sweep in. But here we see that Jesus has gone ahead on our behalf. And so I looked a little bit more into forerunner, and it is used metaphorically. We see that it's used metaphorically also in connection with Jesus as sort of like the first ripe fruit. It suggests that the Christian hope of entering God's presence is guaranteed by the forerunners already reaching this goal. The idea we see Paul talk about in 1 Corinthians 15 where he says that Christ is the first fruits of the dead. He's already gone into the tomb and he's come out of it and he has now ascended into heaven. And so he is the first to lead us in, right? He's taking, he's taking the lead on that. In rendering this Greek word, it's important to avoid also the idea that Jesus just simply ran ahead. He not only ran ahead, he went there to do a work, to prepare a place, to anchor, and then to also come back to meet with us. That's the Holy Spirit. Finally, moving forward on this forerunner idea, it's interesting as I looked further into the connotation and the way in which a forerunner would be understood, 
This is a wrecked ship, obviously, right? I don't think they normally float on the beach. So, um, and you see the rocky shore, the, the, the bluffs and the cliffs along the side. The people that would be the original audience here receiving this letter, this letter of encouragement, these are people that are very familiar with, with the sea, with fishing, sea merchant ships, coastlines, things like that. They're very familiar with that sort of terrain. Jesus as a forerunner, when they say forerunner, it draws a picture in people's minds as they're seeing this, as they're hearing these words. The coastal regions could have very rocky waters, both along the coast, as you see here, but also under the waters. Reefs, hard, rocky reefs that would lie just under the surface sometimes and sometimes a little deeper. And so as larger ships would move in to try and port, they would come in to try and harbor. If they were not aware of where those things were, they could get their bottoms torn out. Or if they happened to come into harbor and they weren't aware that a storm was coming or a big swell came up, they could get their ships brushed up, slammed against the rocks, and it would be shipwrecked. And so the forerunner found this really fascinating. If storms were approaching or there was the potential, quite often if ships recognized that they were coming into a rocky harbor area, a rocky coastal area, they would park the ship and anchor it with one main anchor going down directly where the ship was, far out from the actual coast. Then they would send a smaller boat with one person, maybe a couple, with an anchor rope and they would carry that anchor rope to the shore and they would usually find like a large rock maybe some some well-established trees that they could wrap this rope this anchor rope around and they would secure that rope giving that ship that merchant ship that boat a double anchoring out from the rocks so that when storms came winds could blow Waves could rise, and that ship would stay out there and not have to worry about slamming up against the rocks during those storms. It also was a way that once, once the forerunner went out and established a safe place at harbor on the coast, they could also reel the ship in safely to land. Are you seeing the picture right now? Are you seeing that when it says that Jesus went as our forerunner, he's gone ahead of us and for us, anchoring us, anchoring our hope in behind the curtain, in the presence of God, and he begins to draw us in, pulling us, drawing us closer and closer to safe harbor while keeping us steady when the storms come. For me, it's a beautiful picture. It puts us in a place where we feel like we're at right now in many ways. Many places, many of us have been. I can think that, I look back at the past four years and I realize how much this, this idea and this notion and even this picture helped me 
through a lot of the hardships and the storms that came our way. Where it really was hard to hope sometimes. Where I began to wonder and question. But I could feel the Lord anchoring my soul back there in the presence of God. I knew that Jesus had gone before and he was pulling gently, gently guiding me back. This is a couple of pictures to just think about and get that imagery. A smaller boat going out, probably going to a, a big rock like that. Isn't that amazing? The idea of being anchored to the rock too. That can also play out in many ways. Jesus is the rock, right? He is the firm foundation. And here's what it would look like. You can't really see it well, but there is a tethered line going out to those trees in the rocky banks and there is one anchor dropped deep in the water right there. The other thing that I think the writer of Hebrews is getting at though is that it's not just simply the safe harbor of when it all comes to an end and it's time to just park. But it's also the notion that safe harbor and coming into harbor to port was also for working vessels. And we are working vessels. God has not called us to sit idly by and just be pulled in and that's it. Get to land and rest. He has us out, out off the coast for a reason. And when he pulls us in, it's not sometimes to just sit there and park. It is to go back out. It's to find ourselves as working vessels to, uh, to get repairs. To, uh, to restock. In fact, I think about that when we come here sometimes into this safe harbor and we take the Lord's Supper together. It's almost like the working vessels are coming in for a, for a brief port before we're launched back out into the work. He has anchored us with hope. I'll leave you with one last image. It's kind of hard to see as well, but I love Rembrandt. I'm, uh, my background was in art prior to coming to the Lord, and uh, he has not let that love die out. But Rembrandt was one of my favorite uh, painters to really go through and see his work, his style, and just the the, the little symbolic messages he has in there. But this is Jesus calming the storm. And over in the far darker corner is Jesus sitting there while the waves are crashing. It's, of course, a reference to the end of Mark chapter 4. We see that uh, by faith, hope, and love in Jesus, he's not only our forerunner, but we have to remember that when storms do come, and they do come, when the waves seem to get high, when the waters seem to get choppy and we wonder, could we capsize, could we get dashed upon the rocks? And he says, no. We also have to remember he's in the boat with us. My friend, one of my best friends from college, we were talking the other day and we were both <laughs> richly encouraged by this fact. He was going through some things with his daughter. Um, you can only imagine raising teenagers in this day and age. The challenges that we're facing, 
the questions that they're asking, struggles that they're having. And we talked about being in the boat, being in this boat together, in this, this ship of fools sometimes, right? With fool's hope and Jesus right there in the boat with us. He doesn't just hang out on shore. He anchors us. He comes back and he, he comes, to, comes along with us. He sees that we get there safely. I'm reminded of this old hymn from 1902. I, uh, I graduated my undergrad. I went to a small Baptist Bible college in Dallas called the Criswell College. And uh, we loved our Baptist hymnal. And there was, a, uh, there was a Baptist hymn that we would sometimes sing, sing, and it was by William Martin, My Anchor Holds. Listen to these words. I can feel the anchor fast as I meet each sudden blast, and the cable, though unseen, bears the heavy strain between. Through the, through the storm I safely ride, till the turning of the tide. And it holds, my anchor holds. Blow your wildest then, O gale, on my bank so small and frail. By his grace I shall not fail, for my anchor holds, my anchor holds. Friends, by his grace and by faith we shall not fail, for our anchor holds, our Jesus holds. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this ship that you have made for us, Lord. We thank you that, Lord, you have made us your people by your son and that, Lord, you have sent him here and then back to you as our forerunner. Lord, securing our passage in fact, paying the way that we might be forgiven and enter boldly into your presence. We thank you that you don't expect us to be perfect, that you know we're not going to be perfect and that we will fail and we will doubt and we will face anxiety and fear, that we will find ourselves frightened by waves of uncertainty, times of turmoil, moments where we feel like we are small and unable to do anything great. Lord, we thank you that it's in our weakness that you are strong. We thank you that you, Lord, sustain us and you also continue to draw us to yourself that you might finish the work that you've begun. We ask you now, Lord, to help us grip tightly to the hope that you give us in Christ. Help us to feel ourselves tethered to you. And Lord, help us to continue the work that you have purposed us for. We pray all these things in the wonderful name of Jesus, our forerunner, our anchor, our hope. Amen.